You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm the founder and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, and I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate. Alison. Good morning, everyone. I'm Alison Tate, and I'm a writer of fiction, non-fiction, and features. And each week we bring to you the latest news and happenings and a little bit of gossip in the world of writing, blogging and publishing. So what have you been up to this week, Alison? Well, I've been writing, writing and writing, which is, you know, probably a good thing given the podcast uh, subject. (laughs) But I'm also, to be honest with you, I'm also sitting here today a little bit grumpy because the the cost of my large coffee at my local cafe (laughs) went up 50 cents today. And, like, I do need my morning coffee. And, And I had a bit of a discussion on Twitter about it. It's gone to $5, which I don't know about you. I know. I thought that was outrageous. So I thought, well, I'll just do a test here and see what everyone else is paying. And most people for the same price are paying somewhere between about $4.20 and about maybe $4.80 max. So I'm just feeling like I've been totally ripped off. And then someone said to me, but why don't you just drink it at home? Because you know it's a lot cheaper. And it is a lot cheaper. I, I agree. However, as a freelancer, I find that I need to go and speak to people at least once a day or I go slightly mad. Now, I mean, I don't know, you've you've got a whole lot of stuff going on, but do you spend a lot of time by yourself? Do you need to go out for the coffee? I do feel that I haven't started the day unless I've paid for my coffee, despite the fact that I have a nice little Nespresso machine at home. Uh, But I don't pay $5. I just bought a coffee then and I think it was $3.80. So I don't know what's going on in your town, Alison. Well, you know, we pay pay a lot. We we out here in the country, we pay a lot more for everywhere. We pay more for petrol. And clearly, we now pay more for coffee as well. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to be all right now. The caffeine's starting to kick in, so I'm okay. But what about you? What have you been doing? What, what have I been doing? I haven't been ripped off coffee-wise. Um, <laughs> but I have been travelling a bit. So I got back from Brisbane. I spent a couple of days in Brisbane uh, last week to running a session for about 55 people on how to raise your profile. So that was pretty fun. Um, it was actually a group of entrepreneurs. But I think it's the sort of thing that is really relevant for writers as well, especially in this day and age where it's so important to cut through and it's so important to be able to um, have your name recognised at least, if not your face, so that people understand who you are and those who are interested in your work will you know, buy it or read it or whatever. So what was your number one tip for these entrepreneurs wishing to raise their profiles? The first thing, absolute number one tip, is you actually need to embrace the fact that that needs to happen. (laughs) Because too often I meet writers who just say, oh, but the words need to speak for themselves. And, you know, that may be fine in utopia, but we don't live in utopia. And these days I do think it's important that if you want the words to speak for themselves, if you want people to actually read the words in the first place, you need to get out there and, and raise your profile. It's as simple as that in this day and age. I totally agree. And speaking of this day and age, yes. I just thought we should have a little chat about a story that I saw on Fox News during the week that said that it's a US story and they're saying that the art of cursive writing is being lost, that kids can now, you know, they text and they type and they do a million different things, but they can't write running writing anymore. Mm. And now, I know that my uh, here in Australia, they're still doing it because um, my oldest son got his pen licence last year. Uh-huh. 
Yes, he did. In fourth grade and in fifth grade, he's learning to do cursive writing with his pen and his pen licence. Now, I personally... I'm not actually that concerned about the loss of cursive writing, mostly because I don't use it myself. I can't read my own handwriting, so I tend to type. Really? (laughs) I think all those years of being a journalist and scribbling notes and and all that sort of stuff has rendered my handwriting completely and utterly. Um, If I do a shopping list for my husband, I have to type it or he comes home with all the wrong things or he rings me from the supermarket going, what have you written here? You know, it's that kind of stuff. Wow. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much I how much I care about this, but I don't know about you. Like, do you have any? Are you attached to cursive writing? I am. I'm very oh, attached. I have okay. to say, I loved. We had a subject called cursive writing at school, and I remember how you used to have the little horizontal lines, but then you used to have the piece of the the, the angled lines that you would put underneath, so that your cursive writing would be at an angle, and you could follow the you could follow the the, the, the lines that would show up from underneath. And it was my one of my favourite subjects because I did so well at it. I can imagine you being. See, I got in trouble all the time because I used to write what I still do. I write what they call backhand. Did you even know that was? No. Um, so my writing slants the wrong way, which Why? may be at the root of all of my handwriting problems. Are you right-handed? I am. Why would and your I, handwriting slant the wrong way? Oh, because, you know, maybe I'm leaning to my left brain or something. I don't right. know. Yes, creative people are wide. I should have been a doctor. That's all I can say. <laughs> I should have been a doctor. Well, I, I think I'm a big fan of it. So uh, long live cursive writing. All right, well, you'd be happy with the new um, Evernote uh, app for Android, which allows you to handwrite on your Evernote screen and, yeah. and keep your handwritten notes. Do yes. you use that kind of stuff? So I read about this, right? right. <laughs> yes. I got so excited, I literally drove to JB Hi-Fi that day the minute I read about it, chose my stylus. So not only can you handwrite on your iPad screen, or it's not just Android, it's, it's the other devices as well. Oh, right. okay, yes. So not only can you handwrite on your, on your screen, um, you can also, you know, draw pictures and do shading and all of that kind of stuff. So I downloaded the app. I bought my stylus. I bought the fancy stylus, and um, that was about that was like at Christmas. Oh, and um, yeah, it's been sitting in my pencil case ever since. Oh, you haven't used it. (laughs) I think I broke it out of its packaging and started playing with it and thinking to myself, I can edit PDF documents. I can do this. I can do that, and have not used it once. There you go. That's really mm. interesting. See, I, it's to me, it's like it's, I wouldn't go near it because, again, I wouldn't Why? be able to. Well, A, it's something else for me to remember to carry. I've already struggled to find a pen, let alone my stylus. Did you have a pencil case? No. <laughs> Should I? <laughs> Do you carry a pencil case around with you? Yeah, yeah doesn't everyone? Uh, no. <laughs> Well, maybe they do, but I don't. I'm, obviously, I'm very ill-prepared. Like, I struggle with a pen. Um, no, I have to say that my I'm really, really happy with my um, keyboard for my iPad, and I just type everything, and at least that way I know where I'm at. And I can type so much faster than I write. Yes, that's true. Me too. So much faster. Mm. And um, what else have you got for us? Have you found anything, any well, other headlines we need to know about in the writing in world? change of pace. Um, The Oxford Dictionary has included 900 new words into the dictionary and uh, they include words like beatboxer, bestie, you know, chugging, (laughs) all the good ones, 
death spiral. I don't know why that wouldn't have already been in there. And as, along with exfoliator, I mean, surely that's been around for ages. Wackadoodle. Oh, Wackadoodle's been around forever. My yeah, exactly. Where, where have they been? But interestingly, they've had four new additions that have made headlines around the world, and they are variations of a word that I can't bring myself to say. Um, and we won't actually even include the link in the show notes, but I'm sure if, you, if people Googled it, they would find it. And um, the four variations are on the word Many people will understand what I mean when I say see you next Tuesday. And <laughs> the Oxford Dictionary has now included see you, in, see you next Tuesday with a Y at the end, then see you next Tuesday with ish at the end, then see you next Tuesday with ED at the end, like past tense, I suppose, and see you next Tuesday with ING at the end. Now, no doubt there'll be much debate as to whether these are nouns or verbs or adverbs or whatever, but, um, and we won't go into that discussion here, but I just thought that was interesting that they felt the need to include four See You Next Tuesday variations in this year's, um, you know, list of editions. Well, maybe they're trying to raise their profile. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's get, that gets them lots of clicks anyway. <laughs> So, so what have you been, been reading this week, Alison? You're, you're our big reader. All right. Well, speaking of raising profiles, I had another look. Um, this is a book that I bought uh, last year and had a read through because um, I did an, in, an interview with the author on my blog. Now, mm. the author of the book is Hazel Edwards, and she is an Australian author of more than 200 books Good for book. children, young adults, and adults. And her book is called Authorpreneurship, The Business of Creativity. Mm. So I read the book last year and um, I went back and had another look at it because a lot of people have been asking me lately about this platform building thing and what do they mm. need to do and do you really need to do it? And it's really interesting. It's, it's like there's some kind of, you know, something in the air. It's all of a sudden coming out. Mm. Um, now, I thought I think this is a book that would, if, if you are a beginner, like if you haven't done any of this sort of work before in the sense of building yourself a platform, or if you're starting out as a writer or if you're sort of, you know, building a freelance or author career, Mm. um, it's definitely worth a read because she talks about the fact that authors need to think about their about their careers and about their days mm. as, as being small business owners. Like you uh, can't yeah. imagine yourself to be this wafty artist anymore. Mm. I mean, I don't know if you ever could, although, oh, maybe, I don't know. Um, but she talks about the fact of, you know, building yourself into this, you know, this brand, mm. but also into a person that has multiple income streams because it's very, very difficult. I think a lot of people will possibly have realized to make a living off one book. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people think they might just write the one best-selling book and that's mm. going to set them up for life. Um, and maybe they will, but even if they do that, it's going to take a while mm. um, to kind of build. So in the meantime, a person has to make a living. And she talks about ways that you can still you know, be in the writing game and be creative and be doing your thing and and be making a living out of that. So it's it's definitely worth a read. If you're if you're sort of, you know, thinking about being a writer as a career, the book Authorpreneurship, The Business of Creativity by Hazel Edwards is definitely 
worth a read. And as, I mean, I guess as someone who, you know, has been talking to entrepreneurs and speaks to entrepreneurs regularly, mm. you would be able to see the parallels between a writing career and a small business, yes? Absolutely. I mean, I think it drives me nuts when people resist the concept that they do need to treat their writing as a business and they think that it's all about the art because that is one surefire um, passage to oblivion. Uh, so I think that um, people... You, People will come up, will resist many of the things that Hazel has said, especially in the world of writing and publishing, which is unfortunate because I remember sitting at uh, in the audience at the recent Walkley conference. Well, not it was last year's Walkley conference, and somebody on stage was talking about the concept of a personal brand, and uh, a, a member of the audience piped up and said, "Cows get branded, not people." And I thought, oh, my God, how short-sighted. And, and, you know, he got quite a bit of a clap, actually, because there were obviously other people who agreed with him and who felt that uh, they should just concentrate, concentrate on the words or on the writing, which, of course, is, uh, is absolutely important. But the reality these days, and I think that's reflected in the, the title of Hazel's book, Authorpreneurship, is that you can't just concentrate on that concentrate on that at the expense of other important things like the business of writing and and branding and all of that sort of thing do you come up you know against people who think that the concept of a personal brand is like a dirty word oh it's funny you should mention that. I was on a panel at the Digital Writers Conference last year mm. and I was with a publisher and I was with a playwright and we were talking about this various, various aspects of this kind of stuff. And a woman in the audience asked me, um, you know, how much time I spent with my website and my blog and various things. And I explained to her that when I first started out with it, it had taken me a, a little while because, you know, you have to sort of put, put a lot of energy into to getting yourself started and doing all that, but that it didn't take me that long. And, and then she said to me that she felt I should be concentrating on the writing. And I said, well, obviously the writing always comes first mm. um, because that's the cornerstone of what you're doing. Like you, you have to make sure you can't get so busy doing all the other things that you forget about that. Mm. Um, anyway, the, the conversation went on a little bit. And in the end, she... <laughs> She, she liked what I was saying so much that she stood, she got up and walked out. <laughs> I was just left sitting there going, okay, so <laughs> going really, really well. But the publisher that was on the panel with me, you know, had this to say. She said basically that if she is given two quality manuscripts and one of those people has a platform and one of those people does not, she will go with the platform every time. Yeah. There you, there you go. I just think, and I, and I think it comes down to that. I think, you know, obviously she's she's got two manuscripts there that she's considering publishing, so they're both good manuscripts mm. and the writing is important. Like that's, that's you know, the, the first thing. Mm. But the rest of it, you know, it does matter. And, and I think that anyone who thinks that a traditional publisher is going to do all the marketing for them when they sell their book to, to you know, to a traditional publisher mm. is also in for a rude shock. You know, oh, it's, it's an ongoing saga, unfortunately, yeah. for yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay so, so what's, what's going, going on in the world of blogging this week? week? Well, this week I just thought, given that we were talking about, you know, Best Australian Blogs last week mm. and that we've got more than 500 entries in the Best Australian Yeah, blogs, way more which now. Is so mm. exciting. Mm. Um, I was sort of look, looking for some, you know, looking at blogging and looking at the different things and I found um, a link to 
the uh, top 40 blogging quotes, mm. which were on a website called IncomeDiary.com. Mm. And the first one really uh, took my attention because I think it's something that a lot of people forget. And the quote was, don't focus on having a great blog. Focus on producing a blog that's great for your readers. Mm. And I think that that's probably something that, you know, in the world of monetization and promoting and traffic and all the sorts of things that go hand in hand with blogging these days or seem to, mm. um, that it's probably, you know, it's a, it, is, it is worthy of a number one spot and it's something that I think a lot of people need to kind of, you know, get back their focus on that as well. So what do you think? I mean, did you have a look through the, the blogging quotes that I... Yeah, I think that um, the interesting part about the world of blogging is that people do it for so many different reasons. And so it's hard to have, you know, one blanket philosophy or a whole lot of overriding um, pieces of advice because some people do it, you know, purely for monetization. Some people do it because they really want to express themselves. Some people do it because they want to become famous, um, you know, regardless of whether they monetize it or not. And I just think it's opened up the world to um, a lot of, you know, really good talent, but a lot of really good dross. <laughs> Not really good, really bad dross. And a good dross. Yeah, as well. So, um, but, you know, like with anything, cream rises to the top, and I think that that is the best part of, you know, you mentioned the Best Australian Blogs competition, which is open for entries now and people can enter until the 3rd of April. And if you have a blog, I highly recommend uh, that you enter. It's really easy. It's bestaustralianblogs.com.au. And this year, you know, everything has stepped up a notch. The prizes, I mean, last year was over $80,000 worth of prizes and this year it's huge, even bigger because it includes, uh, the winner gets an international trip for seven days to a mystery destination, which shall be revealed soon, courtesy of Trafalgar. The great people of Trafalgar are putting together a almost like a bespoke trip and the blogger will be able to you know, get insider information, will get to meet people they wouldn't normally meet as, as a traveller and um, you know, their flight and, and meals are taken care of as well. So it's pretty exciting. So what I'm most excited about with the competition is discovering new blogs because I'm finding at the moment I'm kind of reading the same ones and I'm really keen to discover some fresh voices and some new ones as well. Oh, me too. I'm that, That's, again, as you said, because I think it's like anything, you do tend to find a patch of blogs that you like and blogging communities seem to be sort of like circular bubbles in some ways. Like once you mm. get into one, you sort of tend to go round and round and round a little bit mm. and I think branching out into new sort of bloggerspheres is, is exciting and that's one one of the aspects that I'm looking forward to um, as a judge as well is, is just discovering some new blogs and having a look around and, and just seeing, you know, who's out there. And, of course, you know, I, I guess for a lot of bloggers, um, writers particular, like this is a blog writing competition, mm. is, um, you know, speaking of meeting people that you wouldn't normally meet, like it's it's random house. Like it's, it's getting yourself in front of a random house publisher yeah. and that to me has got to be worth... You know, that's a that's priceless. If that's Absolutely. what you want, that is priceless. So another co-sponsor, yeah, is Random House. And last year, um, they, from last year's group of uh, winners, they are publishing two uh, of of the books. So the the overall winner, Snay Roy. For, from Cook Republic, her blog is Cook Republic. Her cookbook is out in April, and also Clint Gregan from Reservoir Dad. His book is out in uh, August this year. So that's really exciting. That is exciting. But um, who is our writer in residence this week? 
Well, speaking of books out, we um, are speaking to Dr. Anita Heiss this week and her new novel, Tiddus, came out about uh, two weeks ago and I saw on her Facebook page uh, towards the end of last week has already gone into reprint, which is very exciting. There's so much activity out there at the moment. It's brilliant. Um, And do you think that's because of her author platform? Oh, I think that her author platform probably has quite a lot to do with it. She's very, very... Um, she's very active on social media. Mm. She has a great Facebook presence, Twitter presence. She's got a great um, website that she keeps an eye on and updates regularly. Mm. She speaks a lot, you know. She's yeah, one of those people lot. that really gets out there and talks to people and, and um, you know, talks about a whole range of different subjects as well. She's not just talking about her books, but she's out there talking about a lot of different things all the time. And I think she's, um, yeah, she's a, she's, a, she's a great example of an author who really gives herself the best possible opportunity. You know, she puts herself behind, you know, 100% behind everything that she does. And I think it's great. So anyway, um, here she is. Dr. Anita Heist is the author of nonfiction, historical fiction, commercial women's fiction, poetry, social commentary, and travel articles. She's listed as number 27 on the Booktopia list of Australia's favourite novelists, and in 2001 was the first Aboriginal student in the history of the University of Western Sydney to graduate with a PhD in communications and media. Anita is also a regular speaker at writers' festivals and events. Her latest novel is Titus, a story about what it means to be a friend. Welcome to our show, Anita. Thanks for having me, Alison. I'm very excited. Very excited to have you here. Now, you write everything from chick lit to poetry. Do you find it difficult to switch between genres and styles? I think that's a really good question because I think, first of all, I have to say I don't really consider myself a poet uh, per se because I read good quality poetry and, and I, would, I would call it, mine are more like the social observations that are short and punchy and don't go to the end of the line. So it doesn't, it's not <laughs> Okay. Um, but it's a really good question because someone who writes poetry well may not be able to write a novel, for instance, and writing a memoir is not the same as writing for TV. So switching genres is, they are different skill bases. And I've tried and I've written, you know, attempted poetry and I've written numerous novels and I've written a memoir and I've tried writing for TV and and or writing for um, the theatre, as it were, and I'm not great at that I'm quite verbose and writing novels and so forth requires you to write every detail I'm very big on using the senses and I love writing about what my characters can smell and taste and see and so forth but for instance when you're writing for the screen or writing for the stage uh, you don't write all that detail because that's that's acted out Um, and so it's that pairing back of details that I find quite difficult when I'm you know have to uh, switch between genres because I like writing detail um and that's and because I like researching the novels and so forth with all those different things and you obviously enjoy the challenge of writing different styles and different genres and things how do you decide which format an idea should take I think for me it's the story um the story I want to write and the audience I want to write it for that that is what determines the genre and will determine the voice and the style and the format. So um, when I was wanting to write about women's stories, about relationships, for instance, and put average women on the radar, literary radar, it was, um, for me, it is it, this normal fit for commercial women's fiction. I didn't know at the time that it was chiclet because I didn't read in the genre, um, but I knew it was fun and quirky and that there was a commercial mainstream um, uh, market for it. So the, the format and the style of writing 
fitted the story. Now, writing for young people, so upper primary, writing about the stolen generations and so forth in a diary format, uh, fitted well the story of the stolen generations in Who Am I, the Diary of Mary Talents. I wanted to write about also the kids out at La Perouse and put them on the, the national identity radar but put them on the national uh, literary radar. So I had to write a, a, in a story or write a, in a format that they would read themselves. So obviously that determined the, the voice and the style for that um, novel. And as I've mentioned I don't really call myself a poet, but there are things that I want to say in short, punchy um, pieces which don't fit prose, which look look like on the page they're poetry, but I would prefer to call them something like social observations. And, and that's kind of what I've attempted to, to do in my collection titled um, I'm Not Racist, but... Okay, so it's quite deliberate with you, isn't it? Like you, 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 you sort of you seem to take an idea and and plot it out, like knowing what that voice is. You're not just sort of like, oh, I've got an idea to write about the stolen generation. I'm going to sit down and see what comes out. Oh no, no. Every single book has uh, a defined audience before I start. Whether it's commercial women's fiction, and I go, right, eighteen to forty-five year old women generally buy in this genre. And I learned that when I wrote my first one for Random House, not meeting Mr. Wright, and I, my, my publisher there used to be a buyer for Dimmicks, and she explained to me uh, who the buyers were. So I come to understand when I was writing, you know, who's the audience? I, you know, it's the women sitting on the train or lying on the beach reading these books. Um, the the Stolen Jeans book was. Um, about Mary Talents, that was a, a defined audience as well. So I, if I'm not someone who sits down and looks out the window and, you know, lets the words flow. I, but one, I don't have the time to do that. I am quite strategic in in my writing and what I'm writing, who I'm writing it for. So every single project is well and truly determined before I sit down to the keyboard. Okay, so. Have you always worked like that? Do you remember writing your first manuscript? Like, did you have this thing of, I'm going to sit down and write a book? I did, well, there's two parts that I did have this idea. I wanted to sit down and write a book. Um, and that was born out of, I was working at uh, Streetwise Comics at the time. Mm-hmm writing comic scripts and I wasn't very good at that because comic scripts are very few words with one message per page and you know, I'm verbose so that didn't work um and but I had also um I wanted to write this book I wanted to write one book which was turned out to be Sacred Cows and I remember sitting in Canberra over the summer of 94-95 with no structure really outside of me giving myself X amount of hours each day to sit and write. So I had lots of chapter headings and lots of ideas and lots of bits and pieces, but essentially no other structure to how um, I would continue to write each each chapter. Um, and they were more like essays, I guess you'd say, with, with, you know, with an attempted satire in them. My process now is completely different because, and, and I'm thankful for that because I'm what is known in the industry as a plotter as opposed to a panster. A panster sits down and it's organic and they fly by the centre of their pants and um, they let the characters and, and you know, drive the story, uh, for want of a better word. And, and I'm a plotter, which means that I map out the entire book, whether it's a memoir or a kid's novel or an adult's novel. I map out the entire novel um, before I sit down to write in full. So I'll do character breakdown. Say, for instance, for Titus, there's five main characters. I sat down and I 
uh, developed each character's profile, their backstory, their quirks, what they look like, what they eat, and so forth, before I sat down to write the novel, so that I know full, what you know what a character is going to say, whether there's a certain terminology they use, whether they swear a lot, or whether they have a lisp, or whether what they're going to wear each day because they may just wear gray, uh, gray black, and white. So I know what the personality of each character before I start writing. I do chapter breakdowns like an essay plan for every chapter and yeah people but for me that means that by the time I sit down and to write the novel or the memoir I can write 80 or 90,000 words in eight weeks because I know what's going to happen next how much so if you can do the writing in eight weeks how much time do you spend on the plotting well, that, well, the re- so I'll research, and while I'm researching, I'll be mapping out and I have a whiteboard. Like Petitas, I had a big whiteboard up at QUT, and, and there was quite a structure to that book because it was it, it's set around a book club. So each month they would have a meeting. So I, I go, right, and I mapped it all out, and I'm mapping out, okay, this is June, what's the weather like in Brisbane in June? So I'd have key points to consider mm-hmm. in terms of writing about it. What book are they doing? Which Now, each book would lead to whatever the theme, the theme for that chapter because the book was a springboard to talking about the things that matter for me. Right. So the research, for whether it was, you know, going to Manhattan for Manhattan Dreaming and going to Canberra because it was set in Canberra and New York and Canberra and Paris for Paris Dreaming and also part of that was set in Daniloquin. So for me, the, the, the big work is in the research because the research informs everything that I write. Okay. So I might spend two, three, four, five, six months researching and then I can nut the novel out in, in eight weeks because the entire time I'm writing up uh, scenes, little, you know, vignettes and so forth while I'm in a coffee shop where my character will be sitting. I'm taking notes the whole time and by the time I sit down, I may have 19,000, 20,000 words worth of notes. It's like method writing, isn't it? It is. It's, I am a method writer, so I get into... You put yourself right in it. Yeah, and like, so my character in Manhattan Dreaming, I, you know, I did things that a 30-year-old Lauren did that I, Nita Heights wouldn't do today. You know, I need to go to the, well, I don't need to. I, you know, I have no desire to go to the Sex Museum in New York, but my character never been to New York before. He goes on a date with someone who's doing his PhD about sex and the arts. You know, so I do these things. I think, wow, well, you know, what would my character think the first time walking down Fifth Avenue? And she's from Goulburn. Yeah. Like, she'd be in awe. Yeah, so. yeah. All right, so... How did you become a published author? Like, what was your process from having that idea for that first book to actually, you know, getting a contract? Well, I, I mentioned I worked with Streetwise Comics. So that was my first job out of uni in, in 1992. And it was a, a not-for-profit organisation. And we produced comics for young Australians with low literacy levels, so rural youth. We did the world's first comic for deaf people, young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander youth and so forth. And we wrote about legal rights and health information and the environment and so forth. But it was during my time there that I started building up my publications list, uh, writing um, articles for youth magazines and I had columns in a couple of youth journals and what I was doing, I really loved it. I really loved the, the about the ability and the opportunity to write creatively about important issues. And during that time, I wrote my first piece of other paid journalism in a magazine called Habitat. And while I was there, I thought I thought back to my time at university and how all the books on the shelf that I had read about Aboriginal society and culture were written by non-Aboriginal people. Right. And um, I. 
you know, there was a number of examples. You know, I read a book by somebody who had never been to Australia, wrote a book about Aboriginal people being cannibals based on something, a letter that he'd read by somebody in in, in New South Wales. And um, I thought, you know, history and perceptions create, you know, books and literature every day. Yeah. And we need to be writing our own stories and we need to be, um, telling our own, giving our own versions of history as well. And so I wrote this satirical, I had this idea about writing something called Sacred Cows and looking at Australian Sacred Cows like the Backyard Barbecue and Skippy and Vegemite and, and I had all these great ideas. Mardi Gras, the, the, the men's shed, you know, the garage yeah. and so forth, the RSL club. And so I wrote what I thought was an attempt at being funny, this collection of stories, and I sent it to every single major publishing house in the country. And I knew enough to say, you know, you send yourself a copy and you don't never open it so you've got proof if someone rips off your ideas and so forth. And I got knocked back from every major publishing house in the country, which was debilitating at the time. But, you know, I've since learned that even the best authors get knocked back. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's about finding the publisher who recognises your voice and, and believes that they can do you justice, whether it's chick weird or YA or sci-fi or whatever. And I, then I got picked up by Magabala and that came out in um, 1996. Now, for me, I was just going to write this one book. It, it was meant to make a point that we can write our own stories and we can look at white Australian culture and turn it on its head as well and say, well, you know, the men standing around the backyard barbecue while the women are inside, you know, making yeah. Well, can look quite ridiculous as well. But interestingly, that came out 18 years ago and last year I had a school in Queensland order a set of 40 to use in their satirical English class or something or other. So it still has the purpose of it or the style and voice still has validity in 2000. What are we in? 14. 14, I know. How do we get here? So, you know, it, it, I didn't know it, I was going to write any more books at the time though. I just wanted to do this one book and make a point. Right. So how did you then go from that to working, you know, to writing fiction? Well, at the, I, from that I actually wrote a, a collection of poetry called Token Kori and I self-published that because I, because I wanted to learn about the process of publishing. I was doing my PhD on literature and publishing at the time at UWS. And then uh, when I submitted, literally just before I submitted my PhD, in 2000, I was approached by Scholastic Australia, who have the My Australian yep. Story series, and it looks at different moments in, in Australian history, Federation and the plague, the women's movement, the Rum Rebellion and so forth, and they approached me and said, would you write you know, a 45,000-word novel for 8- to 10-year-olds about the stolen generations. And I'd never written a novel before, and I just I was in a complete non-fiction frame of mind, having just written 100,000 words of a, a textbook on uh, Aboriginal literature and publishing for my PhD thesis. Yep. And But the, the good thing about this was there was a structure given to me straight away, 45,000 words, it's in a diary format over 12 months, and it's uh, in the voice of a, you know, a 10-year-old. So I was given a structure which I think made it much easier for yep. me. And I went through, um, I, you know, I, I wrote that rather quickly as well. Um, I did lots of research, obviously, talking to people who, who were from the Stolen Generations who had lived in Bombardieri Aboriginal Children's Home. Um, and so I think the process, it was more of an easing of my, easing, um, an easing into writing fiction. Mm. And that book's gone on to be, um, you know, taught nationally. It's been translated into 
Spanish, French, Farsi, and Kevin Rudd wrote the introduction to the Mandarin version. There you go. (laughs) So, uh, and then I, and then, you know, that was 2000 and while I was writing that or that, that's in at the publisher, I'm lying down the beach, down River Beach, reading fantastic Australian fiction by people like Linda Javen and Rosie Scott and Georgia Blaine. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, where are the, these are friends of mine as well. Um, And I'm thinking, oh, you know, but where are the women like me? Where are the women like the women I went to university with her? And so I saw this niche, this gap that needed to be filled, and that's when I started writing commercial women's fiction. Okay, well, that's so uh, you, you, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you write so many different things. What do you think of the idea that an author needs to have a brand? Because it's quite a big thing in publishing at the moment. Is it something that you work on? Is it something that you think is just developed naturally for you? How, how do you, you know, what do you think about that idea? Um, I think it's an important thing for people to consider. I don't think that everybody needs a brand. I mean, my brand, I, I, I think it depends on the author and what they do and why they're doing it and who they're doing it for. Right. Um, I have a brand because I've been working on a professional strategy for myself for over a decade with yep. a life coach. My books really are the springboards for me to have to talk more widely beyond the reading community about issues that are important to me. So Anita Heiss is the brand and those who buy into or want the Anita Heiss brand know what the brand brings. And so my brand brings books and commentary related to Aboriginal society, um, discussions about identity, my own and and national identity because I talk about those sort of things in my work um, and also my passion for literacy. So, But my overall brand is really about communication, whether it's stories, published stories across genres, books, whether it's public speaking or whether it's broadcasting. And I think the difference for me is I am a full-time writer. Writing is my business. I made a decision you know, a decade ago that I would follow a path where I would only take on work, paid work or and even my love jobs, which are voluntary jobs, that actually further my writing career or publishing career in some way. Okay. So working in schools and so forth. I created a brand really because writing's not my hobby. I'm not on a salary. I don't write on weekends. I'm not an accountant or a lawyer or a hairdresser or whatever who, you know, um, has this as an aside thing. This is my everyday thing. And so I created a brand really um, from my passion for writing it but my desire to make a living out of what I love doing most. Okay, terrific. So you, you mentioned it yourself that you do, you actually do quite a lot of public speaking. You speak regularly at writers' festivals and other events. Is that something that you enjoy or something that you've learnt to enjoy? Because I know a lot of writers find the whole public speaking, putting themselves out there thing quite difficult. Uh, there's people who find it difficult. I think it's, it's a valid thing to say. And, but I've also met writers who say, uh, well, I wrote the book and I don't need to do any more. And I think that's quite an arrogant way to consider or... Uh, yeah speak about people who are loyal to you as your readers. I like reading my meeting my readers. I think festivals are a great way to do that. Um, it's a great way for me to and for readers to engage with with you and, and learn about why you do what you do. It's absolutely exhausting. I and you know I've gone through periods of time where it's been hard to enjoy because you're so tired. You, you're just tired and and um, and Sometimes there is no boundary between, you know, people read your novels and they think they know you personally They and when in fact they don't know you personally, they know the characters or they know what you choose to put in the public domain. Um, but, for instance, this year 
my travel is absolutely crazy. But I understand that that's the choice that I've made and part of the job of being a writer is 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 going to festivals and that it's not a game and it's not enough in my mind to think you can just write a book and do nothing else. And I, I want to respect those who are loyal to me, my, my readers, and doing events and festivals to me is about giving back something to them. Okay, so what are you working on at the moment? Like what are we going to see from you in 2014 apart from it sounds like a lot of travel? Well, I, I've decided that, um, that my new book, Titters, is something – that I just love and I want to really enjoy its birth. Generally, when I have a book coming out, I'm working on another book and I'm sitting in my hotel room in between events working on the edits of the next book. So I've decided that 2014 will be about uh, enjoying enjoying all the travel and all the interviews I have to do for Titters and, and talking about the main themes of that, which friendship and sameness and so forth, but also catching up on reading because I don't read when I write and I'm quite I've got so many books I need to review, so catching up on reading um, and blogging. I want to get back into my gratefulness blog. I'm going to have an attempt this Friday's, uh, or this, I'm going to have an attempt at writing a short story about love for an anthology that I'd like to uh, submit to, and that will be a challenge for me because um, it's easier for me to rock, knock over 10,000 words than 3,000. So I guess this year you probably, you'll see lots of little bits and pieces. I don't have an idea for another big project at the moment. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that's. I mean, I, I think that that sort of creative space is just as important in many ways as continuing to, to be productive all the time, isn't it? Well, I've written, I agree, and I've written, this is my fifth novel since 2007 and I've had a memoir come out and book of poetry in between that time. Oh, and two YA books. So I think it's just, I think it's okay. I think you you need a good lie down and then (laughs) Good, you know, give give my brain a, a rest. Good idea. All right, and just to finish up, what are your top three tips for aspiring authors? Okay. I think it's really important for writers to know why they're writing, to sit down and go, why do I want to write this book? Why do I want this book out? What's their purpose? What's their goal? And I think that will help determine and harness their motivation and their determination to finish their project. I think the next tip would be, and these aren't in any particular order really, uh, to read widely because it will help you find your own voice um, what you like to see on the page, what you react to as a reader, but it'll also help you understand what's in the marketplace. And if you want to be read, you need to know what you compete. If you, if you want to be published and read by the broader community, you need to understand what's in the marketplace and what the competition is there. Um, and with that in mind, the third tip is if you want to be published, you need to find the niche. Where is the gap that needs to be filled? How will you fill the void? Because that's what I learned most about why my work was so successful because the market's flooded with chiclet, but what, what's missing? So find the niche. What, what story hasn't been told? There are only X amount of stories, but what's the new twist that you can bring to the literary uh, community? Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate talking to you. I think your um, entire schedule sounds completely exhausting. However, I'm sure it's going to be a fantastic 2014 for you. So thanks very much for talking to us, Anita. Thanks for having me. Isn't Anita great? Yeah, she's fantastic. And she's, you know, and such a joy to talk to as well. She's so chatty. Mm. So, you know, it's always always a good time. 
Great fun. And I've, re- I've read uh, Manhattan Dreaming and Paris Dreaming. I've yet to read Titus. That's next on my list. So, um, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I agree. All right. What else have we got this week? Well, this week we asked over on uh, the Australian Writers' Centre page, I asked about word crushes because, you know, you kind of go through phases of loving, you know, having word crushes mm-hmm. and, you know, words that should be used more often. And there's a lot of words that I particularly love that I think should just come out more often and never do. Um, so I asked the Writers' Centre community, which is always incredibly enthusiastic about such questions, what their word crushes were at the moment. And I got every... Now, I'll, I'll tell you one that comes up every single time I ask this question is discombobulate... It is a a massive favourite and it's the kind of word that you never – I mean, how often do you use a word like discombobulate? However, we did have some good ones. We had convoluted, which I think is always good. We had – and I'm always not very good at even saying – lugubrious. Lugubrious, which is a great word. Um, Vacillate, which is one of my favourite words. I like that one. I think it's because my children can't make a decision and waft about trying to go yes or no about different things all the time. Do you then say to them, why are you vacillating? Oh, I do. But I also (laughs) just shout at them and say, make up your mind, because that's the kind of mum I am. Capricious, which I think is a great word. I love that word. Um, And then conniption, which is another word that I think should be used more often. I and hear that a lot. You yeah. hear it a lot? Yeah, I do. And I, I'm kind of at the stage where why is everyone around me using the word conniption? It's That's strange. Yeah. I'm hanging out in the wrong circles. Clearly. Clearly. But um, I also had a look this week. Um, I found a link to uh, dictionary.reference.com mm. and it was um, which is a great headline, six words that can ruin your sentence. So these are six words that we shouldn't be using as often. And they are words like actually, oh, literally, yes. basically, yes. honestly, like. And this one is one that comes up for me. This is the word that I go through and take out of my writing every time I edit yeah. when I'm writing fiction, obviously. Oh, yes. Definitely. I am a shocker with obviously. I'm a now, shocker with the word that. Oh. I will have to go through my writing and cross out the word that a lot. Really? Yeah. Actually, basically, literally. Actually, literally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I use that too often as well. He was actually doing this. Well, he probably was just doing it really, wasn't he? Yeah. Now, a lot of people often ask us, because we're professional writers, they often ask us what our tips are in terms of a whole range of things, how we organise our day, how we write as many words as we can, how, how to get over writer's block. Uh, what's your tip this week that you think could, could be useful for listeners? Well, I actually, this is um, a working writer's tip, and I have actually gone to my friend Alison Rushby on this one. Alison is a novelist um, who works in young adult and adult, um, oh, and she has a children's book coming out this year as well. But she and I were having a discussion a few weeks ago. We were chatting about various things, and I said to her, oh, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm on Airbnb. And I said, oh, are you going on a trip? Mm -hmm. And she said, no. She said, I've got a character who lives in New York, and obviously I've never lived in New York, and I wanted a, a, you know, an apartment for her, and I couldn't sort of like, she said, without coming up with cliches, Mm -hmm. you know, of what you've read about, she said, I just needed to picture something. So she said, I typed, you know, one bedroom apartment, New York, into Airbnb, Mm -hmm. and went through 
through all the different um, images that I found, all the different places, and just picked one that I liked the look of. Fantastic. Like character to live in. Great and research I tip. Great tip, exactly, because Airbnb has places all over the world. So, yeah. you know, if you want your character to be living in Paris or Morocco or New York or London or whatever, there yeah. you go. That's, um, as an adjunct to that, I was interviewing an author who was who had his story set somewhere like Tehran or somewhere that he'd never set foot in before in his life. So he was trying to think, well, how am I going to talk about scenes and the streets and all of that? And all he did was he jumped on Google Street View. Oh, of course. Perfect. Mm. So he could talk about actual shops and actual streets and actual scenes. It's, ama- it's amazing what you can do as a writer these days. My, my son and I read Around the World in 80 Days recently mm. and it was one of those books that, I, uh, you know, it's a classic and I thought it was going to be better than it was and it probably, you know, it wasn't really for me. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's incredibly descriptive. It's one of those books where they describe down to the very last detail every street, you know, every street scene and, and even my son said to me, he goes, he goes, why do we need to know about that? And I, then I thought about it and I said... When people were reading this book for the first time, no one had been anywhere. Mm. We didn't know. Nobody knew what, what the middle of America looked like. Nobody knew what, you know, India looked like. Nobody had any idea. So they had to describe in absolute detail mm. every single thing. Mm. Whereas now we have seen it. You know, we've seen it on TV. We've seen it. If You, you can sort of describe a scene in fewer words almost because there's a certain amount of, well, a lot of people have seen it. So that was an interesting thought anyway. Uh, You can just say the two words, New York, and people already have an image. Precisely, Mm. yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. What are you up to in the coming week, Al? Well, this week I am, well, I'm preparing for my Facebook chat with Fleur McDonald for the Pink Fibro Book Club, which is happening on March the 25th, so that's next Tuesday. And where can Uh, we find the Pink Fibro Book Club? Uh, it's on uh, Facebook, and I will put a link into the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you Google, if you put Pink Fibro Book Club into your um, Facebook into your Facebook search, you will find it. Um, and I'm also putting together a series of writing workshops for children. So I'm doing some research and making notes and that sort of stuff for that. Fantastic. Hmm. I'm uh, busy packing. Uh, I'm heading to San Diego, actually, for Social Media Marketing World. And um, so this uh, next podcast may come to you from San Diego. So that should be fun. There's going to be heaps of authors there. I can't wait to hear about that. Heaps of authors, heaps of bloggers, and heaps of uh, social media types as well. So until then, you can find Alison and I on a variety of places, including uh, the Australian Writers' Centre, which is writerscentre.com.au. You can find me at ValerieKoo.com and Al, where can we find you? I'm at AlisonTate.com. And until next time, we'll talk to you then. Bye.